morning. Scripture reading this morning is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verses 37 to 45. John 6, 37 45. If you're using a pew Bible, it is on page 76 in the New Testament. John chapter 6, 37 45. Hear now the word of the Lord. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who has sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They were saying, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can sing with real conviction and with true hearts that great is thy faithfulness. O God, my Father, that there is no shadow or turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As, as thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord. I do pray that we would know that more fully in our hearts, Lord. Many of us are walking through difficult times, times of temptation, times of failure, times of loss, times of mourning. And while we come to Thanksgiving with a desire to truly give thanks to you for all the blessings that you have so richly provided for us very often, those, those holidays that are meant to be days of thanksgiving and rejoicing wind up being reminders of that which we've lost. Father, I pray that of your own fullness, Lord Jesus, of your own fullness, you would repay all that you take away from us. That you would give us joy in you. Though our hearts are often filled with sorrow. That you would give us contentment in you, Lord, even when we struggle to walk faithfully to you in this life. When the darkness and the temptation seems to be overbearing and too much. Help us remember your promise, Lord, that with the temptation you will provide a way of escape. And as we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, we will be strong enough to stand and to resist 
in the evil day. That when we lay our anxieties before you and cast them upon you, Lord, and make supplication with thanksgiving, we are promised that the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us know these blessings more richly in the days, of he- in the days ahead than we have in the days behind. And Father, as we come to a very difficult section of your scripture once again, and we seek to answer hard questions that your teaching evokes from our hearts and minds, we pray that you would give us wisdom and grace to walk through these questions in a, in a way that is seeking to answer them biblically and according to your word and with a humility that is ready and willing to bow before whatever your word has to say to us. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us and that you'd guard and protect us. Let no unhelpful word come from my mouth. And if it does, Lord, let it not land upon the ears of your people. Encourage our hearts in the truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, today we are going to begin to address some questions relating to election. And uh, I do want to clarify something from the beginning. This is not my hobby horse. All right, this is not my soapbox proclamation. I'm not up here just trying to talk through election and because that's what I really want to get across to you and I just want to hammer it in until those of you who hate that doctrine leave and those of you who love it rejoice. That's not my intention. I actually don't like preaching about this. Uh, At least in some ways and for some reasons I don't like preaching about it because everybody comes to this doctrine with many misconceptions already embedded into their mind, minds that prohibit them from understanding the truth the way the Lord would have us understand that truth. And it takes a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of care to to disentangle the minds of people so that they can then begin to think about election in the right way. Um, And I I don't like that kind of labor (laughs) because it inevitably leads to misunderstanding. And I'm going to try my best to present the truth today in a way that's clear, in a way that's not beating you over the head with it, but definitely presenting to you what the Word of God says. And, um, and because this topic has obviously struck a nerve, I want to take our time on this. I don't want to rush through this. I want to try to think carefully and logically and biblically through the questions that have been given to me. Um, I've received more responses from the last couple of messages than I have, I think, any other message I've preached at Oak Ridge both of thankfulness and and then also thankfulness mixed with confusion and desiring clarity. So we want to walk through this with care. I want to do this as, as humbly as I can and as submitted to the Word of God as I can. So please be patient with me as we walk through this, and I'll be patient with you. And by God's grace, at the end of this uh, message today and the message two weeks from now, we will have hopefully 
some answers, biblical answers to some challenging questions relating to this doctrine. Now, just let's begin with some recap. This may be overkill, but it's really important, I think, that we understand and follow the logic of what Jesus is teaching here in John 6. I think it's important that we keep that in mind as we come to our questions. As we've seen in John 6, Jesus brings up this issue of election in order to explain why, despite this crowd, what they had seen and experienced, why this crowd still was not believing in Him. Verse 30, they say the reason they were not believing was because Jesus had not done enough to prove Himself to them. In verse 30, they say, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? This is right on the heels of Jesus saying, if you want eternal life, you've got to believe in me. And they say, wait, you haven't done enough to prove that you're believable. So what sign will you do so that we might see that sign and believe? For them, they weren't believing because they didn't think Jesus had done enough to show himself trustworthy. Verse 36, however, in verse 36, Jesus says, I say to you, I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Right? It's as if he says here, I'm not here to give you the sign, I am the sign. And you've already seen me do amazing things, and yet you're still not believing. Despite what they thought, the reason they were not believing was not because Jesus needed to do more in order to prove who He truly is to them. Now, as we've been seeing, Jesus explains the real reason why they were not believing in multiple ways. First of all, as we've seen, verse 37, the reason they were not believing was because they had not been given to Him by the Father. Verse 36, you've seen me and yet are not believing. In contrast to that, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. Now this crowd is coming to Jesus, but they're not truly coming to Jesus. They're not coming to him for the right reasons. So what does that mean about them? If Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and this crowd is not coming to Him, what does that mean about the crowd? Logically, it means they had not been given to the Son by the Father. He describes this a second way in verse 44. And I'm not skipping over everything in between. We're going to come back to look at verses uh, 38 through 40 in a few weeks. But he describes this a second way in verse 44, where he says that they were not coming to Jesus because the Father was not drawing them to the Son. Verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, he could not have said this more plainly. No one can, no one has the ability, the capability 
of coming to me. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. And what does Jesus say happens to everyone whom the Father draws? I will raise him up on the last day. So if you are drawn by the Father, then you will be raised up by the Son on the last day. Now, these Jews did not have in themselves an ability to believe in Jesus. In fact, by their own admission, they were not ready and convinced to believe in Jesus. That's verse 30. Jesus says, you need to believe in me. They say, you haven't done enough for us to believe in you. They were not ready to believe in the Son. Jesus' answer to why that is the case in verse 44 is what? They... No one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Jews, by their own admission, were not able to come to Jesus in faith. What does that mean? According to verse 44. That means that the Father was not drawing them. Jesus explains this in a third way in verse 45. Verse 45, they are not coming to Him because the Father was not teaching them to come. Jesus says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. And then He takes that promise from Isaiah 54.13 and He applies it to the situation with this crowd. He says, it's, it's said in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. That's a promise of the new covenant. Therefore, Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, I want, to note, I want you to notice and take note of the absolute statement there at the end. Categorically, Jesus says, everyone who is taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, what do they do? They come to Him. In other words, it is not possible to be taught by God and not come to the Son. It is an impossibility for the Father to teach you the truth of His Son and you not come to His Son. That is what Jesus says here. Let me just read it straightforwardly as what Jesus Himself says. It's written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. To hear and learn from the Father is simply unpacking what it means to be drawn by the Father. It means that you have been taught by the Father to think rightly about His Son and to see His Son in the glory that rightly belongs to Him. In other words, there are no exceptions to this. Everyone who is taught by the Father comes to the Son, just like everyone who is drawn by the Father gets raised by the Son. And just like everyone who is given by the Father comes to the Son. What the Father is doing in redemption, the Son is doing in redemption. And what they are doing in the lives of sinners will be accomplished. It will not fail. 
Right? That's what's at stake in this chapter. The Messiah has come. There's a promise in the prophets that when the Messiah comes, all the sons of Israel will be taught of the Lord. Well, here Jesus is standing before the physical descendants of Israel, and they're not believing in Him. They're not coming to Him. Has the plan failed? Has the Messiah not accomplished what the Father determined for Him to do? Is the accomplishment of God's predetermined will dependent upon the fickle will of man? Right? As if it all hinges upon whether Jesus can do another sign that will then finally convince this crowd to truly believe in Him. Is that what Jesus is waiting on? These Jews were not coming to Jesus because these Jews were not being taught by the Father to come to Jesus. Now we can't ignore the fact that Jesus quotes that promise from Isaiah 54.13, right? All the sons, all your sons, and that's talking about the descendants of Abraham, Judah, Israel, that's all in the context. All your sons in the new covenant will be taught of God. But here there are physical descendants, physical sons of Israel in John 6 who are not being taught of God. Does that mean that God was being unfaithful to His promise? No. Does that mean that God was not keeping His word? No. If that were the case, then God would be a liar and He would cease to be God. No, the rest of the New Testament makes clear what Jesus is teaching the people in this chapter. That that promise of Isaiah 54.13 was not made to physical Israel. That promise was in reference to spiritual Israel. And that promise will be fulfilled in every single member that belongs to spiritual Israel. Now just so you know, I didn't pull that out of my hat. My own, up from my sleeve or anything like that. Let me give you some Bible references that teach that exact thing. All right? Many texts of the New Testament teach this distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel and make plain that spiritual Israel are the recipients of the blessings of salvation in the New Covenant. For example, Galatians chapter 3, verse 29. Who are those who are called the true descendants of Abraham? Who are the true descendants of Abraham? Who are the heirs according to the promise? The physical descendants of Israel who have rejected their Messiah? No. But those who belong to Christ. Those who belong to Christ are Abraham's seed. They are the heirs according to the promise. And you know what that means? That means that if in Christ you become Abraham's seed, then guess what? The promises God made to Abraham now belong to you because you are in Christ. 
Galatians 3.16, by the way, speaks of Jesus as the promised seed of Abraham, the singular seed, the one to whom the promises had been made in Abraham. So ultimately, every promise that God ever made to Abraham and all of his descendants terminates on the head of Jesus and then is experienced as a blessing to everyone who belongs to Jesus. That's the teaching of Galatians chapter 3. And so if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and you are an heir according to promise. Philippians chapter 3 verse 3. Who are those who are called true circumcision? That is true Israel. The true covenant people of God. That's what it means to be circumcised. Who are those who are the true circumcision? It's those who worship in the Spirit, right? It's those who glory in Christ Jesus. And Paul, writing to a church that includes Gentiles, writes to them and says, but we, we are the true circumcision. We are the true covenant people of God. We are true Israel. Because we are those who are worshiping in the Spirit. And we are those who are glorying in the Messiah. In other words, true Israel is made up of everyone who belongs to Christ's church. And the glory about that is that that includes both Jew and Gentile. You go read Ephesians. I'm tell, please, please read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 6. And understand Paul's argument there. The Gentiles used to be excluded from the promises of God given to Israel. They used to be excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They used to be in the world without God and without hope. But now through the blood of the Messiah, by making one new man in himself, he has torn down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, and he has made in himself one new man. Galatians 3.6, this is the mystery that had been hidden for ages, but has now been revealed to the church through the prophets. The Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow recipients of the blessings of the promise. That means that they are partnered now together with Jewish people in the blessings of the Messiah. True circumcision are those who belong to Christ. I think the clearest passage is Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8, which just happens to be the chapter where Paul is speaking most clearly and straightforwardly about election. Exactly what Jesus is talking about in John 6. Romans chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. These are the meditation verses in your bulletin if you want to Look at them, or you can look up at the screen. Remember the context. Paul is describing 
his own grieving heart over the fact that the majority of his kinsmen, according to the flesh, are not believing in their Messiah. To them, all the promises had been made. To them belong the covenants. To them belong uh, the priesthood. And, and through them came the Messiah. And yet the majority of them are not believing. And Paul is expressing his grief over that. But then he turns to say this in verse 6, but it's not as though the Word of God has failed. Now get the logic there. Paul says, all these promises were made to Israel, my kinsmen according to the flesh, but most of them aren't believing. However, it's not as though the Word of God has failed. It's not that God's promises have failed to be fulfilled. Rather, he says, they are not all Israel who are of Israel. Or as the NASB puts it, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. That is the right sense of what this passage is getting at. Just because you were born physically from Israel does not make you the Israel that Paul is talking about here. You see that. I want to make sure we see this before we move to the next verse. Shake, raise your hand if you do see this. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you don't. But I just, I just want to get at this that I'm not trying to talk condescendingly. Please do not hear me speaking to you that way. I'm trying to speak slowly. I'm trying to speak clearly. I'm trying to speak with love and compassion. There are two different Israels that Paul's talking about in that verse. Not all are Israel who are of Israel. Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham, physical seed. Nor are they all children of God because they are Abraham's physical seed. But, as it's written, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, it's those who, are the children of the, those who are the children of the flesh. These are not the children of God. But it's the children of the promise who are counted as seed. As whose seed? Abraham's seed. You're not Abraham's seed just because you were born in Abraham's line. You are Abraham's seed if you are a child of the promise. And who are the children of the promise in the context of Romans chapter 9? It's not all the physical descendants of Israel. It's the spiritual descendants of Abraham. You see that in verse 24 of chapter 9. It's those whom the Father calls they are the ones who are spiritual Israel. And notice this. He calls them not only from Jews, but also from Gentiles. And they are the children of promise. The seed of Abraham. Or as Jesus puts it in John 6, 37, all those whom the Father gives Him to save. All those whom the Father draws to Him to save. All those whom the Father teaches to come to the Son. That is true Israel. 
And so that's the distinction Jesus is making in John 6, 45. And as we're going to see in a couple of weeks, Jesus caps this whole discussion off with this crowd with a very straightforward statement in verse 65. In verse 63, Jesus says, the words that I'm saying to you are spirit and life. Verse 64, he says, but there are some of you who do not believe. For he knew from the beginning those who were not believing him. Notice verse 65. Why? Why were they not believing? Because they did not choose to believe? Well, it is true that they did not choose to believe. But what is the ultimate reason for why they would not believe in Jesus the Messiah? Therefore, I said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. Now, I don't know how Jesus could have said it more clearly than the way he says it in this chapter. Absolute, unequivocal, sovereign freedom to give salvation to sinners lies in the hands of God. And according to Jesus, we are only able to see and believe the truth about the Son if God the Father sovereignly grants that grace and that privilege to us. Why were they not believing? Because it had not been granted to them by the Father. Why, or let me reverse that. Why does anyone believe? Why does anybody believe? Because it has been granted to that person by the Father to believe. Now, I understand the struggles that truths like this can ignite in our hearts, and I understand the questions that are provoked in our minds when we hear teaching like this. I understand I have wrestled through these things. My heart is not callous. I'm not hardened to the issues that are brought to the surface in light of this teaching of election. Sometimes you will hear people talk about election as if it's just a debate topic. It's just something to, to, to argue about for fun. I've never viewed the doctrine of election like that. And I don't view it like that now. There's a reason why God has revealed this doctrine to us in the Scriptures. There are reasons why we need to understand this teaching. Otherwise, it would not be in the Bible. I'm going, to do, I'm going to do my best to answer some of these questions biblically for the rest of the morning and then in two weeks from now. But we need to begin this whole discussion by recognizing something very important. So this is point number one. Amar, thank you. God has chosen not to answer all our questions about election. And until we're okay with that, we are going to constantly try to undermine what the Bible teaches about election. In some ways, this is much like the way that God deals with Job. Right? You, you remember Job suffering in his life, ordained by God that he would suffer. But Job was never told why those sufferings came upon him. 
In fact, that was the only thing that Job really wanted God to reveal to him. Why am I suffering like this? That's the repeated emphasis through the whole book of Job. Job is just asking. I'm not asking that it would stop. I'm simply asking that I would have an audience with you, Lord. That I would be able to ask you, why am I suffering like this? And when God came to give Job his answer to Job's situation, God never explained to him the reason why he was suffering. God chose not to give Job the answer that he was seeking. The only question he was asking. God chose not to answer that question. He simply ended the discussion by reminding Job that God is God and Job isn't. Job chapter 40, verse 2, simply speaking to Job and, 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 and rebuking him, saying, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Will you rebuke me for what I'm doing, in other words? This is God coming to Job saying, Job, I don't have to give an account of myself to you for what I choose to do in your life. Who do you think you are? You know, there can be a lot of fault finders in the presence of God on this issue of election, can't there be? Ready to contend with God if this doctrine is true? God will not have any of that. In fact, God's most definitive answer to our questions about election is simply this. I am God, you are not, and you have no right to sit in judgment over me and over what I choose to do with my creation. That is God's definitive answer to all of our questions in relation to election. And you know where that is? Romans chapter 9. That's the whole argument of Romans chapter 9, or at least a major portion of it. When it comes to God's purpose of election, we have this temptation to ask ourselves and to accuse God saying, like, like what's written in, in Romans 9.14, is there unrighteousness with God? Remember what this is on the heels of. This is on the heels of the declaration that God had chosen to love Jacob and had chosen to hate Esau before either of them had done anything good or bad. In other words, it, it was not God looking through the corridors of time and seeing that Jacob would choose to believe. He would do something good. And Esau would not choose to believe. He would do something bad. It wasn't that at all that caused God to say, I'm going to love one and I am not going to love the other. It was simply, Paul says, God's purpose of election. Verse 11. And you get to verse 14. And what is one of the most common questions that arises, that is provoked within us when we hear something like that? Wait, is there unrighteousness in God? 
How could he say, I'm going to love one and not love the other? That doesn't seem just. Paul says, is there unrighteousness with God? What do we say to these things? Is God unrighteous in this? He says, certainly not. Certainly not. Why is God not unrighteous in this? Well, it's summarized in verse 18. God has the right to have mercy on whomever He wills, and He has the right to harden whomever He wills. And if He has mercy on someone, He has done that person no unrighteousness. And if He hardens another person in his or her sin, He has done that person no unrighteousness. That's the argument. Verse 15 and 16 and 17, Paul brings up the issue of Moses where the Lord says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's one side of the answer to, is there any unrighteousness in God? First of all, no, there's no unrighteousness of God in God because God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. He will do what he wills to do. <laughs> and then the second part of that is Pharaoh where Paul holds up Pharaoh as an example of God exalting a sinner and hardening that sinner in his sin in order to accomplish God's purposes as a judgment for his sin. Does God not have the right to show mercy when he wants to show mercy and to harden undeserving sinners in their sin when he wants to harden them in their sin? Is that God's right to do that? Yes, it is. Now, God is well within His right to do what He wants with His creatures. This is probably going to be where we end today on this one point. I'm not actually going to get to the questions. But I think this is really vital. This is really important that you get this point in your heart and mind. You are not God. God can do whatever He wants to do with you. That is His right. Did you make yourself? Do you give yourself breath? Do you cause your heart to beat? Do you cause the synopses in your brain to fire properly? Do, do you do any of that? Do you call forth the morning and command the sun to rise? Do you bring clouds from the ends of the earth to water the ground? Are you in control of behemoth? You can't do any of that. Man, I can't, do, I can't even keep my truck running well. It's all the deer. Number six. Number six, a month ago, and I'm still waiting to get a call back from the body shop to look at it. We can't control anything. If, if, I, if, if I created myself, then I could lay claim to me. And I could say that I have a right over against God to challenge Him when He wants to do something in my life I don't like. 
If I were responsible for creating any other living being in this world, I might have the right to challenge God and say, God, you need to treat this person according to my desires because I made him. I created her. None of us have done that for ourselves. We haven't done that for anyone else. God has done that. It's God who knits us together in our mother's womb, isn't it? Isn't it God who made the world and the air and and the sun and causes the earth to spin and keeps gravity working and and makes the galaxies spread abroad abroad throughout the whole universe and keeps everything in synchronized, uh, specific time motion? Isn't it God who does all of that? Then who are we to look back at Him and say, what have you done? How dare you do that with your creation? We have no right. You have no right to speak back to God like that. Now verse 19, Romans 9. It acknowledges the knee-jerk reaction that rises in all of our hearts when we hear such statements about God's absolute sovereignty over His creatures. We all have this question. Well then, if that's the case, then how or why does God still find fault with anyone? Because who can resist His will? If it's all up to God, and it's up to His sovereignty, and and it's His will to choose whom He has mercy upon, and it's His will to choose whom He's going to harden, then why are any of us held accountable for believing or not believing? Don't you understand that question? You feel that in your heart, don't you? You know what I find fascinating about the Scripture is that it does not deny the the reality that that question arises in our hearts. Well then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? If, If verse 16 is true... That, that says our salvation is not dependent upon Him who wills or upon Him who runs, but solely upon God who chooses to have mercy. You see that? It's not of Him who wills, nor is salvation of Him who runs, but it is of God who shows mercy. If it's not up to what I want that secures my participation in the mercy of God. If it's not up to what I do, if it's not my own running that secures that God will be merciful to me, then how can He find fault with me if I don't experience His mercy? Sorry, I don't mean to be so loud. If it's up to God who wills, and it's not up to us, then how can he find fault with anybody? I've heard that challenge countless numbers of times from people. How can God blame anyone for anything if ultimately it's up to him? How can he say to anyone, You did not come to be saved in my son. Therefore, you cannot be saved. 
if it depends on God for that person to come. You know, the Holy Spirit answers that question in the same way he answered Job's question, though with less words. Job had chapters of an answer to his question. We have just a couple verses. But notice the response in verse 20. Then why does he still find fault for who has resisted his will? Verse 20. But indeed, O men, who are you to answer back to God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? You hear that language of Job 40 verse 2 that will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you to question what God is doing? Is it right for what God has made by His own power and according to His own purpose, is it right for what God has made to hurl accusations back against God simply because the fault finders don't understand what God is doing? Absolutely not. Verse 21. Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Doesn't God, our Creator, have the right to do that if that's what He wants to do? Of course He does. He made us, and therefore He owns us. And He can do with us whatever He wants to do. Now listen, I know the difficulty that arises in the heart in relation to that. I've said that three times now. I know the difficulty there. But all of us are confronted by the plain statements of these verses. This is not talking about national election or election of people groups. This is talking about individual people. God will have mercy on whom He has mercy, and He will harden whom He will harden. That wasn't in reference to a nation. That was in reference to Pharaoh. That was in reference to Jacob. That was in reference to Esau. That was in reference to Isaac. I know the difficulties here. And in fact, more importantly, God knows these difficulties that arise in our hearts. Otherwise, we would not have Romans 9 in the Bible. But the thing that we have to remember as we start answering and asking and answering these questions about election, what we have to remember is that foundationally, God is not accountable to us. He does not have to explain Himself to us or explain what He chooses to do or not do in any one of our lives. And why is that? Because He can do with you as He pleases. And He will never be in the wrong.
Now, if you don't understand that, or if you can't accept that reality, then you will never be able to receive and rest in what God teaches us about election in His Word. If you don't understand that you are not the one in control in your relationship with God, but God is the one who's in control. If you don't understand that, you will never receive or rest in the doctrine of election. That must be your basic starting point on this issue or you will never be able to seek the Lord with the humility that's demanded. You will never be able to seek the Lord with the proper fear of the Lord that ought to accompany those who seek His face in light of who He is. We go before earthly kings and and none of us have ever had that privilege to go before an earthly king, I would imagine. If, if so, it would be very few of us. Even we with earthly kings would never walk into that king's court and demand that he do something that we want that king to do. We go before that king acknowledging his sovereignty, his right, his authority to do what he wants, and we plead with him in light of our request. You'll never be able to approach God rightly like that, the way that He calls you to, if you don't understand first and foremost His absolute sovereign control over you and over your life. All of your questions on this issue may not be answered. In fact, will not be answered. Because there are some secret things that belong to the Lord, and those secret things the Lord has not chosen to reveal to us. Deuteronomy 29.29. How exactly does the sovereignty of God and human responsibility mesh? We're not told. Are we told that God is absolutely sovereign in salvation and over every single thing that happens in His creation? Yes, we are. Proverbs 16. The The dice cannot be cast into the lap without its every decision coming from the Lord. Matthew 10, the very hairs on your head are numbered and God has written in His book every single one of your days when as yet there was not one of them. That's Psalm 139, 16. God is foreordained. God has decreed. God has absolutely, sovereignly established every single event that will ever happen in your life. And yet, we are responsible for how we walk with the Lord through this life. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. People who do not receive the love of the truth in order to be saved do not receive the love of the truth because they will not receive the love of the truth. They choose not to. John 5.34, I say these things to you that you might be saved. And yet, they would not believe. They chose not to believe. Accountability. Human responsibility. How does that partner perfectly? How can we understand the perfect partnership between the sovereignty of God in absolute, unqualified terms and the the reality of human responsibility that we are accountable for the things we choose to do? How can we make those two things blend in harmony and make sense in our minds? We can't. But the worst thing we can do is deny one in order to uphold the other. 
That's, that is hyper-Calvinism versus Arminianism. Arminianism denies God's sovereignty in order to uphold human responsibility. Hyper-Calvinism denies human responsibility in order to uphold sovereignty. And both of them are wrong. Because they're missing a part of the picture. The blending, the, the, the partnership between those two things. They're not at odds. They work harmoniously together. How, we cannot explain, and we don't know. And we err when we try to explain it. But the fact that both are real, we cannot deny. All your questions relating to election will not be answered at the end of these sermons, but you don't have to have those answers in order to resign yourself to the good, merciful, and gracious hands of a sovereign God. Let me end today on one word from Matthew chapter 11. And we'll unpack this more two weeks from now. I want you to hear how Jesus speaks of this issue in Matthew 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 20. At that time, Jesus began to rebuke the cities in which most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Why is he rebuking them? Because they didn't repent. Keep that in mind. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Human responsibility. But I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. That's human accountability. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to the heavens, will, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. That's like Leonard Ravenhill saying that if God doesn't destroy America, he'd have to apologize to Sodom. It's a little irreverent. I don't know that I would say that wholeheartedly, but there's a truth in that, right? That's, that's what Jesus is saying here. If woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, or Capernaum, and, uh, because you're exalted to the heavens, for if the, if the mighty deeds that had been done in you, Capernaum, had been done in Sodom, Sodom would have repented. It would have remained until this day. But I say to you that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. So we have here, all of this is human responsibility, human accountability before the throne of God. Look where Jesus goes in verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Well, wait a second. Jesus is rebuking them for not believing, but He praises the Father for hiding these things from them. How can, you, how can you see something if it's being hidden from you? How can you be accountable and be held chargeable for not responding to it if it's being hidden from you? Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Yes, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Now listen to what he says next. 
All things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. So who is ultimately the one who is in charge of whether or not you truly come to know the Father? It's Jesus. He says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom I, the Son, will to reveal Him. Well, how can, he re- how can he be rebuking these cities for not believing in him when ultimately it's up to him to reveal to people the truth about his father? When he praises the father for hiding these truths from people because that was what seemed good in the father's sight. Human responsibility, human accountability, Absolute divine sovereignty, both right here in Matthew chapter 11. Now, how are we supposed to respond to that truth? How does Jesus want us to respond to that reality? By taking heed to his command in verse 28. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and the one to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Therefore, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You come to me, and I will give you rest. You take my yoke upon you, and you will find rest for your soul. For I am gentle and lowly of heart, Jesus says. Do you see that plea there? It's because He is the one who is sovereign that He looks at us and says, you must come to me. It's because He's the one who is in control. He's the one who must decide whether or not you come to see the Father. Therefore, you must come to Him and plead with Him to reveal the Father to you. You must come to Me, Jesus says. So I plead with you with the words of Jesus. You come to Jesus. He's the sovereign one. You don't ask the question, am I elect or not? You ask this question, am I willing to come to Him? And if you are willing, that means that you've been given. That means you're being drawn. That means that you are taught by the Father to come to His Son. Therefore, come and receive the blessings of His Son. The blessings of salvation at the hand of His Son. Let's pray together. Lord, you are the sovereign one. You are the king of glory. You reign supreme over the nations. You have established your throne in the heavens. Your sovereignty rules over all. You, O Lord, you do whatever you please in heaven and upon the earth and among the sons of men. To you belong the nations. And we are all accountable to you, Lord. I pray that we would not be afraid to bring our honest questions about these realities to you. It does no good to ignore them. Romans 9, what a grace from your hand to have those questions in Romans 9. Does this doctrine of election mean there's unrighteousness in God? 
then why does he find fault? Who resists his will? I thank you, Lord, that you have given us not all the answers that we long to have, but you have given us sufficient answers to those questions to help us walk with you by faith. So please help all of us do so with joy, with reverence, in proper and godly fear, with love and compassion and mercy and humility, and with gentleness and patience towards one another as we struggle through these doctrines and these teachings together. God, give us grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, may you hear a benediction from that sovereign one for your, for your good and his glory. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and following. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. May you take heart in that truth and walk faithfully and boldly in his name. Amen. Amen. Go in peace.